My name's Nick Anfield. I am director of the Sydney Centre for Language Research at the University of Sydney. And today I'm talking to Lila Sanrock, who is currently in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Sydney. She did her undergraduate degree in linguistics here at this university, got a PhD in linguistics from the ANU and in anthropology, I think, and went to the Netherlands where she spent a number of years as a researcher before coming back to Australia where she currently is. Welcome, Lila. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. So I'm just interested today to talk about the research that you've been doing and the research that is is ongoing and will will continue. Uh, You've been involved in a lot of team research over the years on the language of the senses. Can you tell us about some of those projects and the, the kind of work that you focused on in this domain of the language of the senses? Sure. So um, the language of the senses is a, a kind of vast and fascinating domain that has interested uh, many researchers for many years, especially uh, kind of narrowing in on this fundamental question of whether the languages that we speak and the way that we can talk about perceptual experience, whether that actually influences perceptual experience. So this is a kind of classic language and thought question, um, which we might ask, for example, about the domain of colour. So whether the fact that your language has words for blue and green means that you're able to discern the colours blue and green more clearly and questions such as that. So um, this is the kind of background of uh, intense and uh, fascinating work that's being done uh, around the world by really kind of big group projects who are trying to look at uh, very diverse languages all around the world and see how they map uh, sensory experience to lexical items. And I'm talking especially for myself about work that um, has been pioneered at the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics um, with people such as uh, Steve Levinson, Asfa Majid, and also you, Nick, too. So within that kind of backdrop, um, I was also uh, very interested in uh, sensory language from a slightly different perspective, thinking more about how people, not so much about how the senses are encoded lexically, for example, but thinking more about how people actually uh, use sensory language just in everyday conversation, which is, of course, also a a kind of really strong focus of research. So can I just interrupt and ask, I mean, you know, you you, you just said that you're sort of more interested in how this language is used. Um, So, I mean, in terms of the vast literature that you mentioned, (laughs) you know, is to what extent has that question kind of, been asked and, and and maybe perhaps you could kind of clarify what question, I mean, you gave a bit of the general background, mm. but if people are interested, if people have been interested in this research in how sensory perception is encoded, mm. what exactly does that mean if it's not about, you know, how that such language is actually used? Uh, you mean it has to be used in order to be encoded? Is that what you? No, I mean, I'm just getting at kind of Firstly, I mean, just ask the two questions separately, I suppose. One is first, mm. firstly, simply, you know, what, are pe- what do people in this research field really mean when they, when they ask how sensory perception is encoded in language? Yeah, well, I, I guess the, a kind of one approach to looking at that is really just 
orienting very much to the lexicon. So what are the words that a language has? Or, of course, the grammar as well. What are the grammatical uh, categories or morphemes a language has that uh, refer to sensory experience? So that's really kind of thinking about the language system as something that uh, a group of people share and that a group of people have developed uh, together. But thinking thinking about kind of what are the little the little boxes that our language has given us to talk about the world. So that, of course, that comes through use, but you can also uh, examine a lexicon as a kind of uh, system that is separate from actual instances of the use of that lexicon. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're, you're talking about, for example, just... Um yeah, they're, they're maybe useful to think about the lexicon as you put it, or the you know the dictionary in a sense. You might look up uh, yeah. the color words in a dictionary, and you'd find that this language has five different words for colors, and this other language has eleven different words for colors, and this other language has three. Um, but that would only tell you something about how they've kind of divided up the perception of reality. Is that? Is that what you yeah. where where the sort of research on encoding would stop? Oh, I don't think it would have to stop there, but that's one kind of I guess it could it could start there. So if you're I mean, this is especially you know, to do with the nature of comparison, right? You have to have a way, you have to have some kind of axes or some kind of if you're if you're trying to look at language diversity and compare across different languages, you need some sort of way to approach that question. If you want to say are all languages the same or are they all really different, then you can hold up a number of kind of frames around that question and one possible frame is to compare the words of different languages as they are in a kind of, like you say, sort of abstract dictionary sense. And uh, another way that you can do it is to compare those words more in a sort of uh, use sense as to when do people, if you have some, you know, recordings of conversation or recordings of people telling stories or whatever you have that you're able to analyse, when are people actually using them in in kind of spontaneous speech. Okay, good. So that's where you uh, got up to just a, a moment ago um, was, you know, with this idea of looking at how these words for perception, I suppose this would include things like colour terms like red, green and blue or other types of terms for sensations, would it? I mean, how general do you take the notion of sort of senses to, to be for this purpose? So the particular... Uh, sort of question that we were able to uh, to ask that that we had you know data for and experts for and speakers who were willing to uh, speak for. Um, this was more just narrowing in on the um, on the question of perception verbs only. So we looked at you know there's been a tradition of uh, research into just uh, the the plain we might say sort of verbs of perception. So verbs like see and hear and feel. Um, and we, you know, as you usually do with a project, you start off with this like amazing, huge idea. And then you're like, oh, now we have to actually do it. Hmm. Um, how can we um, actually operationalize this in such a way that it works to, you know, take a dozen languages that are from completely different parts of the world and try to find things in them that we can compare in a reasonable way. And we narrowed down on perception verbs themselves and we narrowed down uh, more on the question of kind of frequency. So how often uh, in these different communities around the world, how often do people refer to visual experience as opposed to uh, auditory experience as opposed to 
olfactory and um, so as opposed to smell and taste I see. and uh, touch. I see. So you, you're talking about simply not, for example, using words like, um, you know, some visual word like a colour term but actually using the verb to see. Yeah, that's right. So it's an interesting question and, uh, like, you know, do, do other languages, do, sorry, not other languages, do all words have a kind of sensory modality themselves? So if we're going to go with a sort of... Uh, to some degree, folk model of the five senses, um, it's pretty clear that, you know, a verb like taste uh, is to do with the sense of taste. Um, but you could also, of course, say, well, there's a much broader lexicon of taste than that. There's uh, salty and sweet and there's, you know, talking about then there's a sort of more metaphorical lexicon of talking about things as uh, fiery to eat or, you know, there's a, there's a whole range of different vocabulary, as you say, that could be related to the senses. Um, and uh, kind of faced with this overwhelming amount of, of meaning, we decided to narrow in on the verbs. But I guess I'll just flag that there are approaches that do try to say, hey, maybe every word has some kind of modality or several modalities attached to it, and can we find that out? So people often approach this through um, corpus techniques or through um, actually asking people to rate words. Like you have a word like jangly, do you rate that as a sound word or as a touch word or a smell word or a taste word and so on? Right, right. So um, so coming back to your your study of the of the verbs of perception, what, yes. what did you do and what did you find out? What did we find out? What did we do, first of all? So um, we were lucky to have, um, to be able to work as a team um, with people who had all uh, been working uh, either in their own language community or in language communities uh, around the world where people had recorded uh, sort of comparable data of everyday conversation. So people just hanging around chatting, um, which is kind of the core of uh, language in, in many ways. So that's where kind of language comes from and where it's, you know, where, where it's uh, alive. <laughs> Um, so we had this kind of, and this is a, you know, following a sort of tradition of, of conversational comparison. So we were working sort of with that model where you have um, these lovely corpora of people just having their everyday conversations from many different communities around the world. And you can look at uh, something in that, in this case, perception verbs and say, well, is this something where we see overwhelming commonality across across many different human groups? You know, perceptual experience is something that we all share to some degree in a physiological sense, or is it something that we see highly modulated by cultural differences and linguistic differences? So that was our kind of starting point. So with these data sets, um, we asked people to look, simply look in their recorded materials and note every time a perception verb occurred. And then we uh, kind of extracted those examples and uh, looked at the meaning they were being used at in that utterance and actually and just literally counted, uh, you know, the number of vision verbs that occurred in, uh, you know, one language as opposed to the uh, number of vision verbs that occurred in another language in just an hour of conversation. I see. So what, what about, uh, you know, you just alluded to different meanings Um I suppose as soon as you would look at, for example, an English conversation and people use the verb see, I can imagine mm. quite quickly they would use it in the in the sense of, you know, to understand. So they might say, I see. Uh, and cross-linguistically, you know, I can imagine that there are many things like that and maybe they 
convey in some uh, way, but what was your sort of approach to distinguishing between verbs like that, like C being used, you know, literally to to describe an event where someone saw something versus being used in, in some kind of extended sense? Did, did you look into that and did you kind of throw those cases out or count them separately or what happened there? Yeah, so we basically tried to count them, we, to count both ways. So on the one uh, hand, we just counted the, you know, the very kind of bare, um, uh, the fact that the word occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, on the other hand, we tried to bring a little more kind of um, sensitivity to bear, if you like, on the actual meaning of the word in the moment, because we had the ability to do that um, with the, uh, the sort of expertise that we had at our um, fingertips. Um, and so we were able to count them both ways. So we were able to look at them just in terms of the, the sort of token occurrence and then also in terms of, well, how often were they used to talk about literal perception as opposed to something like you just mentioned, Nick, the, the you know, pretty common case of using uh, a verb like see, for example, to mean not to literally visually perceive something but more to understand or comprehend something. Okay, so the suspense is killing me. Um, what did you find? <laughs> oh, no, I feel like I have to, I have to do a kind of um, drum roll, I guess. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so we did have. I, I guess I should have uh, the the kind of background to this is. Well, what did you think? What do you think would happen if we had a if we were able to um, to to do a kind of listener poll right now? We were able to ask everybody, you know, which uh, which verbs were most frequently used out of um, sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. What do you think? What do you think would happen? What would everyone think? Well, I think the listener can can imagine. I, you know, I, I I know something about this study, Lila. So um, yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll leave it to you to reveal what you found. All right. So a typical uh, what most people think what we found most people would kind of think just talking about this casually um, was that vision verbs would be uh, by far the most common across uh, all languages of the world. So a kind of universalist perspective says, well, vision is you know overwhelmingly kind of. Um, kind of uh, present for human beings um, and we would expect to see uh, vision verbs as the most frequent, just talking uh, purely about um, frequency rather than about meaning. We found that to be almost but not exactly true. Okay, so we had uh, in pretty much all the languages it was true that the most commonly occurring verb was uh, a verb like see or look. However, um, in one language, Celtal, with work from Penny Brown, um, we actually found that that wasn't the case. So Celtal speakers used what we call a multi-sense verb more frequently than they used a C verb. So this is a verb that uh, actually has a kind of conglomeration of meanings, uh, uh, that see, t- sorry, not seeing, but hearing, uh, feeling, uh, tasting or smelling. Uh, so there was one community that uh, bucked the trend and, and didn't do that. When we looked in more detail at um, the meanings of the of the verbs, so we just looked at, okay, we kind of excluded all those cases that Nick's already mentioned where you see more sort of metaphorical extensions. When we um, looked at those, then we found that actually everybody was kind of towing the line and talking about visual experience using these verbs more commonly than they were talking about. You know, it's interesting in terms of language because, you know, one view is that languages can sort of vary 
as much as you um, as much as cultures can vary and and uh, of course that leads to the question of how much cultures can vary but certainly you know one um, perhaps intuition about language differences is that they can be you know very very different from each other and so for some people that might be counterintuitive or surprising that quite different languages you know and you mentioned um, a language of uh, Mexico, an indigenous language of Mexico, and I, 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 you know, I gather that you had uh, languages from all around the world. So some people might find it surprising that uh, the languages were, as you put it, t- towing the line and sort of all uh, falling into line in terms of their high-frequency mention of visual experience as opposed to all the other kinds of experience. I mean, why would that be? What you, you you used the term just before that vision is overwhelmingly present for human beings, but you know we're hearing stuff all the time as well, and there's always a smell that we can smell, yeah. and, and we're feeling things. So, what what why is vision so? No, different? I, I mean, I agree. I think it's still you know this was one uh, approach to it, and um, I mean, I I think it remains uh, a sort of open question in a way I mean, for many. Uh, I don't know, for hundreds, thousands of years, people have in, in many different sort of traditions, um, people have kind of uh, suggested that, that vision is a, is a dominant human sense. But um, it's not clear that it's that way for everybody. Um, and, you know, th- this kind of work suggests that uh, in relation to talking about using these verbs to talking about sensory experience, it actually it does seem to kind of uh, come out on top to some degree. Um, and I, you know, I, I do think that I, I found that personally surprising. I didn't know. I, I was kind of thinking, you know, things are so different in different places. And, you know, a lot of these communities we know very, you know, as kind of in the Western research tradition, we don't know a great deal about how people talk or, or feel or think in those communities. Um, so I really thought, well, you know, we're going to find out, is it going to be the same or not? So I was a bit shocked actually that, um, you know, that the, that, the kind of visual dominance did seem to to kind of leap out from this data set. But we did actually find um, more variation when we started to look more at the other senses. So I find this a problem in my work in general. You start off wanting to look at all the senses and you get kind of sidetracked by vision and then you never actually really get to look that closely at any other uh, perceptual experiences at all because you kind of um, get carried off looking at thinking about these questions of always oh, vision dominant and how what do the vision verbs mean and all these things. But once we looked um, in a bit more detail at um, the way that people were using perception verbs to talk about uh, auditory and um, uh, olfactory and gustatory and I can never think of the right thing to say for tact- on the tactile experience verbs, we saw that there was actually a little bit more variation. So uh, we could see, for example, that uh, some communities did seem to talk about smell more than other communities did. And in sort of uh, looking more at the cultural uh, milieu and the way that smell uh, is important to those societies, there did seem to be a sort of rationale for thinking about, well, if you are, uh, you know, if the, you can have some kind of um, uh, focus on smell, Uh, in the things that you talk about every day and indeed even in your language. We saw that uh, some of those languages also have very kind of focused and elaborated vocabulary for smell. So that was uh, one example of that was the language um, Chapala with work work by Simeon Floyd. And um, 
we were able, Simeon and Asfamajid and I were able to actually follow that up um, with a with a bigger corpus of chapala, which has a, this elaborated kind of smell lexicon or smell grammar, uh, and does indeed seem to have more frequent just reference to smell in people talking about it in their everyday lives. So we started to um, sort of see that within that broader picture of commonality of people seem to talk about visual experience quite a lot, there's still um, a lot of room for uh, kind of variation and cultural specificity in the other senses. So would you say then that um, the emphasis, you know, once you go beyond vision and look at the other senses, these these cultural differences, would they be explained by differences in people's interest or people's you know, cultural practices or, you know, is there a sort of yeah, a theory Yeah, I think there's a reasonable, I think there's a, uh, you know, I, I mean, you always have to kind of uh, take a good look uh, and um, see how you'd, how would you answer that question and, you know, what's the right way to even ask that question. But I think um, it does seem to be the case that you can find uh, sort of cultural correlates for some of these uh, areas of focus, if you like. So you might find that uh, smell is explicitly, uh, you know, really important. People do uh, want to know what things smell like or that they will have, you know, a lot of uh, stories about, you know, uh, creatures that are able to use their sense of smell to to find people or to kind of hunt things out. Or in the Chapala case, um, there's a sort of emphasis on, for example, in a, in a New Year ceremony where everyone has to throw perfume on each other and that's a kind of that that creation of, uh, or not creation, but that um, kind of physical use of smell is something that's uh, important in the celebrations of that culture, for example. Mm. Um, so I'd like to turn to a kind of related topic, um, and that it, it has to do with uh, another area of your work. So you, uh, not that long ago now, uh, published a paper in the Annual Review of Anthropology on the topic of evidentiality. Um, so I wonder if you could introduce what evidentiality is uh, and, and how your work relates to this topic. Sure. So I guess, um, so I rabbited on quite a lot about uh, sensory language and talked more about the lexicon. Uh, but there's another kind of uh, aspect to how we can express uh I guess, sensory experience. And this is through more grammatical means. And one kind of uh, part of this that I'm especially interested in is the grammatical category of evidentiality. So where we have some kind of um, grammatical morpheme, for example, that attaches to a verb, for example, to explain how you know um, the, the situation that you're talking about. So a kind of classic example is that you'll have a sentence um, like what, like um, uh, Jenny drank the coffee and you will um, have uh, something that you'll mark on the verb there, drank, uh, to indicate whether you actually saw Jenny drink the coffee or whether, for example, you just heard her slurping um, or whether you um, observed that the, the empty coffee cup uh, with coffee in it and, you know, something of Jenny's on the table next to it or something like that. So languages can take uh, this kind of realm of sensory experience, if you like, or kind of getting more broadly now into the realm of sort of 
psychological experience, I suppose, um, and actually categorize according to morphology on the verb or somewhere else in the sentence, um, how that proposition is actually known. Okay, so if I could just kind of clarify. So I think that for people who haven't thought about evidentiality, it's a, it's, it's hard to sort of understand what exactly that means. So, you know, if, for example, uh, you know, I, we say Jenny drank coffee or Jenny walked to the store, um, you know, in English, when I say Jenny walked to the store, I add this ed, you know, uh, suffix on the word walk, and that indicates that it happened in the past. So, you know, we do this without thinking, um, but but very reliably. If, if it happened in the past, I, 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 you know, add this little thing to the verb or I change the verb in some way as you did with drink and drank, right? Um, and, you're, yep. and you're saying with evidentiality, uh, you know, it's the same kind of very low-level little additions of things like an ed suffix, but instead of saying this thing happened in the past, it says I saw this thing myself or I only heard someone tell me about this thing. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, I would say it's pretty much a, a reasonable, um, I mean, you know, a linguist never likes to say yes, right? <laughs> so uh, pretty much... <laughs> It's, it's a reasonable way to, to think about it is that it's, uh, and in many languages indeed, it's fused with the tense system, for example. So if you're talking about something that happened in the past, you can't really talk about it without also saying how you experienced it or how it was experienced by whoever whoever's point of view you're taking at the time. So how, how widespread is this in the world, would you say? Well, I, I haven't done a worldwide survey, but um, those who have have estimated that um, around a quarter of the world's languages have some kind of grammatical evidentiality. So it might be a range of different, you know, the categories might not all be the same and it might be expressed in a range of different ways, but that's the kind of, that's what people suggest as a, as a reasonable estimate. So it's actually a huge amount of languages. Okay, so I want to kind of... Um understand a little bit better what what we are supposed to make of this fact. So let's assume a quarter of the world's languages have some, uh, you know, grammatical marking, as you put it, for um, uh, for evidentiality. So if I just gave the example of tense and if I compare, you yeah. know, tense marking in English, it's there, I have to mark it. If it's a past event, then I put the past tense marking. But in, in other languages that I know, so in, in languages of Southeast Asia, you don't have to mark any tense. You just sort of say, yesterday she drank the coffee, today she drank the coffee, tomorrow she drank the coffee. And kind of context helps you perfectly well understand. People don't seem to have any kind of problem uh, with the fact that there's no explicit marking of tense. So do you think that um, that evidentiality marking kind of becomes when it when it gets encoded in the grammar that it becomes kind of almost redundant in that same sort of way so you mean you could just uh you could just as well context could do the job instead yeah i partly mean that and i partly mean that once something gets into the grammar uh you know it becomes really automatic and you know people sort of almost don't don't pay any attention to it i mean one way to maybe help get get into this or help to sort of explain what I'm trying to get at here might be the following. Mm. So I know that in some of the work on evidentiality going back a few decades now, I suppose um, 
the linguist Wally Chafe wrote a paper about evidentiality in English and um, he spoke about basically adverbs like apparently. Uh, you know, so in English we can say um, she apparently drank the coffee or it seems she drank the coffee or this kind of thing. Um, and that would express the same thing, right? That would tell you, you know, when I say she apparently did it, it would it would tell you as a listener, I, I'm not claiming that I saw this for myself, you know, I inferred it or someone told me. Um, and so, I, you know, there's Wally Chase saying English has got this uh, system, but I assume that English wouldn't have been counted in that 25% of the world's languages. So can you kind of clarify what would make English not count um, as a sort of uh, evidentiality having language simply because it's not expressing that meaning in its in its kind of grammatical system? Yeah, well, I, th- I think, I mean, this is a, it remains a very real question. Uh, you know, does it does it matter whether it's in the grammar or whether it's in the lexicon, or is it even meaningful to make that distinction? So I think, I think, uh, so, and I think in some wise, there's a kind of initial uh, excitement, for example. So with the, this is kind of more a kind of metalinguistic commentary, I suppose, um, but initially you know, noticing these grammatical systems in these languages and especially, you know, languages of uh, the Americas were very important and this um, was, it was so kind of thrilling to find there was this category, a way that you could talk about knowledge using these little tiny morphemes on the ends of words that people just seemed to kind of seamlessly, automatically be able to, to uh, you know, kind of remember exactly how they knew everything uh, with these uh, tiny little grammatical markers that encoded this kind of wealth of meaning. There was a lot of excitement over discovering this. I find that curious, though. Do you, don't you find that curious? I mean, it, would that implicate that, for example, if I'm telling you about stuff that's happened that I am mm. somehow unable to remember whether I saw it myself or heard it? No, sorry, I don't mean not remember. I guess I just mean that there, there seemed to be this kind of, uh, the language seemed to be driving this absolute need, if you like, to make that choice every time you say something. Okay, so that sounds so like you're getting to that, something quite specific there yeah. about, um, I mean, how I understand one of the objections to the, the case of, uh, that Wally Chafe, the claim that he's making about English, um, is that the English system is optional, it's not obligatory. Yes, so absolutely. So the the kind of, there was an initial kind of like pointing out that this seems to be something you have to choose, you know, you have to do it every single time, exactly like you say. Um, but uh, there was this parallel uh, attention very, you know, sensibly also given to the fact that, well, actually, uh, even speaking English, we do infer this all the time. And if you, you know, if you go back and you look at a, an English conversation that you've had or, or listen to somebody else's, if you feel like eavesdropping, um, you'll kind of be able to, to make a, a judgment uh, in a sense as to how you think, you know, how that person knows the thing they're talking about through all sorts of other cues, um, like the adverbs, like the fact that they don't add any qualification itself. Does that kind of mean something? So there's this, uh, kind of parallel way that you can do the same job. And indeed, uh, since the kind of uh, initial focus on uh, evidentiality as a grammatical category, uh, there has been also a kind of growing uh, focus of 
uh, this way, the same kind of domain. How do we mark knowledge? How do we say how we know something uh, in a range of other languages? And you see a fair bit of, I would say, a fair bit of kind of um, argy-bargy between the different groups as to, you know, you can only call it evidentiality if it's grammatical. That's the only thing we're interested in. That's the only thing that counts versus, uh, you know, the the other other group that are saying, but hang on a minute, this is something we can uh, express in a range of ways and there's no particular reason to privilege uh, grammar over other means of expression. Yeah, it's an interesting puzzle. Uh, I recall hearing this debate with, I can't remember who else was involved, but the linguist, uh, the ANU linguist, Anna Vishbitska was involved in this and mm. um, she was arguing that uh, actually it was more important that a language expressed something, uh, it was more important when a language expressed something optionally because it showed that the person was going out of their mm. way to express it rather than expressing it simply yeah. because they had to. Uh, and um, yeah. you know, there's an interesting point. It's clearly, you know, it may not be what matters when you uh, you know, your specific interest is in is in kind of grammatical systems. Um, but on, on that point of grammatical systems, perhaps we could turn to the kind of larger context of where evidentiality fits in and what kind of a grammatical system it is. I, I've seen your recent work, you've been involved in uh, as a, in a team working on a couple of papers about something that's called the grammar of engagement. Um, so I'm wondering if you could tell us about that. And, and I mean, firstly, does evidentiality fit into this concept of the grammar of engagement? Mm. So, yeah, I guess I'll just uh, just sort of quickly, uh, sorry, just round up the last point just by uh, sort of saying that, of course, there's also the many, many sort of in-between languages where evidentiality is part of the grammar but is not necessarily obligatory. So that's another kind of, you know, question that has to be asked and examined. But in terms of thinking about um, this broader degree of engagement, so um, so earlier on and for myself as well when I was first working with uh, languages that I was learning about and I'm still learning about uh, in uh, Papua New Guinea that have um, complex evidential marking, there was a kind of uh, focus on uh, thinking about evidentials as something that is from the speaker's point of view. So when the speaker speaks they and they use an evidential, they're talking about their own knowledge about something. Mm -hmm. And there was a kind of uh, mono-perspectival approach, if you like, to an evidential marks the viewpoint or perspective of the speaker. But um, looking in more detail at how these systems actually work and starting to connect uh, to broader ideas uh, in linguistics to do with um, stance and uh, the kind of addressee, it starts to become clear that actually a lot of the time you're not just taking a single perspective. You're not just thinking about the speaker uh, yourself when you speak. You're also really aware of addressee attention and addressee knowledge as well. And um, Nick Evans proposed that we need to kind of uh, recognise that many uh, grammatical systems of the world building on um, work from uh, Landaburu are that, um, that we need to recognise that there are these kinds of uh, systems, if you like, of demonstratives or grammatical markers or uh, wherever it might be in the, in the language that are really about expressing two points of view at once. They're about recognising that uh, the speaker knows something in a certain way, but the addressee is also going to have some kind of attitude towards it. 
So, you know, when, as you would know, when we talk, we're constantly calibrating, not just how we know about something and our own awareness of it, but we're constantly thinking about um, how the person we're talking with, what their uh, approach to it is, how they know about it and, um, you know, do they know more than we do or whatever. And there's, you know, simple ways we can express that, like we can ask somebody a question uh, suggesting that they have the, you know, knowledge about it or there's more kind of, uh, if you like, subtle ways to do with uh, actual grammatical systems that have might have a little morpheme again that means something like, uh, you know, I, I know this, but I, I think, or I saw this and you saw it as well or something like that. Okay, so, do, you know, that's that's uh, just to clarify what you're saying, that is that kind of the mm. definition of the grammar of engagement that you're moving from, uh, you know, marking in the language that has to do with your own access to some sort of piece of information that you're reporting, you're extending out from that and you're including some uh, evaluation of what the addressee's kind of knowledge or access is to that information. Is that? Yeah. So I think that, I think that makes sense. So engagement is kind of, is thinking about, is uh, looking at the sort of relative speaker and addressee access to a particular proposition or thing or whatever. So you can see it relates a lot to, to kind of information structure as well, um, like early inform- or and present information structure work. But it's generally kind of uh, thinking about how you can uh, think about that, not just in terms of objects, for example, as the, as the way uh, demonstratives are often used, um, but if you can think about whole propositions and you can think about how um, you can uh, grammatically mark speaker and addressee, relative speaker and addressee knowledge to a whole proposition rather than just to like an actual object in the world or something like that. Okay, so here's a kind of um, naive response to that. I'm, you know, I, mm. a naive response to that might be, well, I can understand how I as a speaker can somehow signal uh, information about my own perspective or sort of mm. understanding or access to, to the, the thing that I'm speaking about, but how do I know what yours is? How do we know? I mean, I guess the first point to make about that is we never really know whether someone's, you know, talking, telling the truth or not in the first place. So, of course, when I say, you know, you mark something uh, to say that how you know about it, that may or may not be how you actually know about it. You know, that's just, that's kind of, it's how you display your knowledge rather than what the actual state of your knowledge is. Um, and the same goes for, I, I guess, for the addressee to some degree. Like it doesn't, I mean, you're absolutely right. How how could you know? We, we can never really know. But at the same time, we can uh, we can say that we can display what we think it is or we can display how we want the other person to take it. So one one way I try to think about that, I suppose, is, is you know, you, you use the word display. Perhaps another word might be claim. Uh, yeah. that you sort of take a, a position that that's what's going on. I, I, I thought it was interesting that you pointed out about, you know, how qu- just simply asking a question would be an example of this and, and perhaps people don't normally kind of think about it this way but my understanding is that simply by asking a question you are really making a claim just as you said about mm. the other person's state of mind, which is that, you know, that you ex- that you expect they should be able to uh, answer that question. And we know that, of yeah. course, questions can be, you know, used for all sorts of different purposes, but the ostensive claim would be, um, you know, you should know the answer to this. So would simple, uh, you know, so-called interrogative marking on 
constructing a question in any language like, say, English, would that count as part of the grammar of engagement? I would say the way that, uh, you know, it's been defined so far, not per se the grammar of engagement because that's more, again, we're kind of, uh, I suppose, dancing on the edge of this question of, you know, what does it have to be to be called grammar or what, you know, how do you get into the category? How do you get in there? Um, and we started, as is, as, as I suppose is typical, with a kind of relatively narrow definition of engagement, again, to be thinking more about these sort of paradigmatic um, contrastive grammatical systems. But uh, by the same, you know, and this is the same with evidentiality as well, there's, there's typically a kind of distinction made between narrow evidentiality, um, closed class grammatical systems, uh, in paradigmatic opposition to each other, as opposed to um, broad evidentiality, which is more what Chafe was talking about. And in fact, he, uh, I think he's the actual person who made this distinction in the first place. Um, and you could think about that with engagement too. You could sort of think about, well, there's this kind of narrowly defined, you know, some languages have it, some languages don't kind of tight system that seems to suggest uh, some kind of uh, I guess, at least historical attention to these categories. Although I'm also quite attracted to the uh, Vizbitska point that you made about, well, isn't it, doesn't it matter more if it's optional? Um, but you can also see how this notion of uh, being able to claim an addressee knows something or being able to kind of make reference in some way to addressee knowledge, how we couldn't really talk without it, right? Like everyone's got to be able to do that. Um, so. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a kind of fun thought experiment, I guess, to say, imagine a language with no questions. What do we, what, what would happen? Um, uh, so I think that the, the same kind of idea of a continuum of, well, we've all, people have to do this. They can, their language, they can to choose to sort of do it in a number of, in a number of ways with their languages. Mm. So is this kind of work that you will be continuing on with, in the near future or are you kind of working on other projects now where's your current research focus on and and, and what, do you, what do you anticipate doing in the yeah, next year or I so am, I really hope to be able to keep working on it what I would really like to be able to do is to be able to um, get back to um, uh, a language in Papua New Guinea that I have been able to work with speakers of this language called Duna for many years and it has uh, you know, people use these kinds of grammatical markers of evidentiality, of engagement in their kind of uh, everyday conversations with each other. And I would really like to be able to get back there and keep working with Duna people on finding out more about, um, you know, the, about these systems in their language and especially also actually about how children learn these systems because it's a pretty uh, kind of fascinating accomplishment um, that, you know, children learning complex evidential systems or complex engagement systems have to be able to do this task that you've pointed out of being able to kind of speak the invisible. They have to be able to uh, kind of talk about knowledge from a pretty early age in order to be sort of competent speakers of the language. So I'd really love to be able to learn more about that as well. Speaking the invisible, I like that. Well, <laughs> well thank you very much for this and uh, I look very much forward to hearing more about where that research goes in the near future. Thank you very much.